Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the award-winning, not award-winning, podcast, Quote the Raven. I'm QTR, happy to have you here. And today we will be diving into my latest installment of my also award-winning, not award-winning, series entitled Our Bullshit Economy, in which I lay out my gripes with the financial system after taking several swigs out of a brandy bottle. So if you're looking for high-quality financial analysis, this isn't the place. First and foremost, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people who sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to give them some love first, and then I'm going to give you the two rules for the podcast, and we will get well on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers at JM Bullion. It is the only place that I buy my gold and silver. I love the people at jmbullion.com. Their links are in my podcast description if you want to link right to their site. I buy from them because they're reputable. They've been in business for nearly a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales. And myself, like my listeners, we have a dedicated person that we can talk to there, the lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com. You can email Laura if you want the personalized touch of a sales rep. Maybe you've never bought gold or silver bullion before. You have a bunch of questions about it. You want to know what's in inventory without looking at the website. Email Laura anytime you want. Tell her the QTR podcast sent you. She'll make sure that you get taken care of. No order is too small. No order is too big. Check out my friends over at jmbullion.com. I love those guys. They uh, they turn around my orders very quickly. They ship them quickly. They always have inventory when I'm looking for it. Even during the silver squeeze stuff, they still had inventory. So uh, they, they win high marks for me, and that's not just because they support the podcast. Trust me. I can be bought, but... Uh, but it would take a lot more money than that. <laughs> no, my uh, my podcast supporters, my patrons, the people that support me, I always make sure that they're people I know, businesses that I use, uh, and uh, things that I advocate for personally, um, because I don't want to be full of shit. That's why I turn down a lot of sponsorship offers from people for the podcast, because at least if you got to listen to five or six minutes of me ranting at the beginning of every podcast about the people I love, at least you know it's I'm coming by it honestly and it's not bullshit. With that being said, I want to shout out my buddy George Gammon over at the Rebel Capitalist Pro Platform. George recently roped in, you know, George's Rebel Capitalist Pro Platform, first off, is taking off. He's got like over 300,000 fucking subscribers on YouTube. The guy is just crushing it. He has gone speeding past me on the podcast highway at 2 trillion miles an hour while I am in the right lane in a Tesla Model S Plaid that has been engulfed in flames, basically just waiting for that final explosion to take me out of my misery. So George's Rebel Capitalist Pro Platform pins him with... Chris McIntosh, Lynn Alden, and now recently Brett Johnson has, or Brent Johnson has joined the, uh, Brent, I said Brett, it's Brent, everybody knows it's Brent, I'm an ass, Brent Johnson has joined George Gammon is the point, that's what I'm trying to say, you get access to Brent, live question and answer sessions, you get the Rebel Capitalist Pro forums, and you get, of course, all of George Gammon's content, check them out. The link is in my podcast description. A smarter guy and a cooler guy I don't think I have ever met. I like George a lot, and I love his platform. I'm on his forums all the time. Speaking of people that I like, how about my good friends over at the Wall Street Jesus and Sang Lucci Steam Room? The Steam Room is a piece of software that helps you monitor options flow coming into the monitor, really, flow. I don't know what the fuck I'm saying. 
All right, dickhead. You know, it's been two weeks since I did a podcast. Maybe I lost my mind here on the uh, on the script. Meanwhile, I can just I can just visualize Sang Lucci and Charlie Bathgate just pulling their money out now. So we can't, you know, we it was a lovely run. We can't support you any longer. So let me see if I can get this right. The fucking Steam Room is a piece of software that allows you to track money, a.k.a. fucking dollars, going into the often illiquid options market, a.k.a. it tracks the equities market, a.k.a. the stock market, if you'd like to call it that, equities to those of you fancy financial fucks, and the money coming into the options market can oftentimes telegraph where moves in equities may happen. That's why all of these new pieces of software and uh, new investing services always offer unusual options activity. That's why they do it on CNBC, because people want to know where the money is going in concentrated bets, right? Because oftentimes that can mean something. Well, there's no better platform to do that than Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus's Steam Room it is a beautiful piece of software. These guys are the original people to track options flow. Before anybody else was doing it, Lucci and Wall Street Jesus were doing it. Uh, I met these guys back in 2012, so I've known them for almost a decade now. Honest people, hard workers. The link to their piece of software, which I have used and is aesthetically pleasing as much as it is functional, the link to that piece of software is in my podcast description. You could check them out. Give Lucci a shout. Give all of those guys a shout. J.M. Bullion and George Gammon. Just tell them QTR sent you. They will make sure, they have assured me personally, that they will get you taken care of if uh, if you do mention my name and they know you came over for the podcast. Finally, I want to say thank you very much to my friend Pete Hedges over at the Trader's Path uh, who has ended his uh, support of the podcast. Uh, his platform is doing very well, but I wanted to shout him out one more time and say thank you so much, Pete, for your support over the last couple of years, not only for the podcast, um, but also just uh, being a buddy and uh, being a decent guy, and I appreciate that very much. So just a, a quick send-off to my brother, Pete Hedges Over at the Trader's Path, I'll throw the link in the podcast description one more time because I'm a nice guy. This also goes out to my friends over at Corvus Gold, Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul. Thank you guys for your continued support of the podcast and some of my longest-running supporters, Max Mulvihill, Mark Haywood, Kyle Thomas, Chris Bede again, Darius Kordonsky, Chris Gerard, and Sheer Luck. Thank you guys for your continued support of the podcast and my newest patrons. I didn't do my newest ones, so be a short list. Gerald Burns, Brad Nesseth, what's up? Gavin Thomas, thank you so much. Ed Kammeyer, thank you. Eric Wilhelm and Kathleen Kelly. David Reed, my man Traverse, and the Mad King of Metals, along with David Barker. Your appreciated support. Your report is appreciated, I think is what I'm trying to say. Hey, it's July 4th weekend. I've been uh, on a uh, pretty serious alcohol regimen to keep my mind limber. Those may not be the only words I mix up throughout this podcast. It is July 5th. Did I mention that? That's incredible. First off, before we get started, I'm not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. Do your research elsewhere. I hold no licenses, no registrations. This is not a recommendation for any securities. Don't do anything that I say, please. Honestly, this is a one-star podcast. You can rate it as such on iTunes so other people don't get the wrong idea that we're peddling information that's useful on here. And finally, this podcast has a three-drink minimum, formerly known as the artist, formerly known as a two-drink minimum, uh, until inflation hit. Most times, inflation sucks unless you own financial assets or 
it is the drink minimum for a podcast, in which case you're just going to get a little bit more twisted before we get started. Speaking of twisted, has anybody seen the DD fiasco over the last couple of days? I want to lay out, you know, I talk a lot on this podcast about U.S.-listed China-based equities. And if you watched my Our Bullshit Economy speech that I gave in October of 2019, you would know that for years I worked for a company called GeoInvesting, which helped out several U.S.-listed China-based frauds. In fact, that's how I found them. Uh, I read their report on NQ Mobile, I think back in 2012 or 2013, and said, wow, this is really great research, and I want to be a part of doing research like this. I I loved the -the on-the-ground due diligence in China. I loved the fact that they had exposed the U.S.-listed company that nobody really was able to gain access to, and uh, and show other people. And actually, I think that was Carson's report. I think it was the Longway Petroleum report I read uh, from Geo that made me want to work for them. But NQ is the one that got me interested in, you know, activist short selling and looking at these companies that were based in China. And so since then, you know, I worked for a number of years uh, in that space. If you've watched the movie The China Hustle, uh, that's about. Uh, Geo Investing, the firm I worked at, and and Dan David, who is the guy that ran the firm, uh, along with his partner Maj Soydan, and basically his uh, journey trying to get regulators to do something about U.S. listed China-based frauds. And there's um in the movie, I think for one sixth of a second at one point. But the point is, you know, since then I've talked a lot about why I'm skeptical of U.S.-listed China-based companies. And for those of you that don't know the scoop here, you've never seen the movie or you've never invested in U.S.-listed China-based companies, you're going to want to look into the variable interest entity structure with which companies list in the U.S., which essentially, to put it mildly, is when U.S.-listed China-based companies list in the U.S., you're not buying shares You're not buying equity in the company the way that you would buy equity in Apple. So if I own 100 shares of Apple, I own 100 shares of Apple. But if you generally, if you buy 100 shares of a U.S.-listed China-based company, you're buying shares in a VIE, which is essentially linked via contract uh, of sorts to the company. So you're you're buying shares in a derivative of the company's equity in in bird's eye layman's terms and not a direct interest in the company. So that is uh, a good place to start. The second problem with U.S. listed China-based companies is that they don't follow the same audit requirements as U.S. listed companies. Uh, Up until December of last year, where a bill was passed forcing Chinese companies to comply with U.S. audit rules, uh, which I think they have several years to implement, and then after then, I, I wouldn't count on them implementing it. Anyways, I'm going to read you a piece from ComplianceWeek.com. Uh, the bill would force foreign-based companies to submit to oversight by the U.S. Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, which is the PCAOB. Uh, the bill is meant to rein in accounting abuses by Chinese-based organizations like Luck & Coffee, Uh, Called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, it would delist a foreign-owned company that refused to comply with the PCAOB's audit requirements for three consecutive years. And then it goes on to say that companies in China um, 
the uh, Chinese communist government has refused to allow American regulators to perform audits of Chinese companies, claiming such audits would unveil state secrets. Um, And so in essence, what it means is U.S. listed China based companies are under no obligation to work with U.S. regulators. So it's really fascinating. There's no cooperation between Chinese regulatory officials and U.S. regulatory officials, uh, which really makes it legal. I mean, it isn't legal, but it seems to make it legal to run a company in China, completely make up your numbers, list in the U.S., uh, publish those numbers to the SEC, and there's no recourse for you. You know, the exchanges are happy because you pay the listing fees. The bankers are happy because they get a slice of the money that comes in from taking you public. Uh, Maybe even your auditors are happy because they're getting an audit fee, generally one that's a little bit larger than most audit fees. Um, So, And also that's a great way to spot companies that are doing nefarious things, even U.S. listed companies. Just compare their market cap and industry to another company that has a similar market cap or industry. And if their audit fees uh, are exponentially higher, Usually there's a reason for that. That's a great thing to look at. And those are usually in the proxy statements of certain companies. So the jig is that U.S. listed China-based companies aren't really held to any sort of account. And oftentimes when these companies get busted on U.S. exchanges, there's no recourse for U.S. regulators to go after the executives that are generally uh, Chinese citizens which is why in the case of one company I can think of off the top of my head that's still listed, where they have a China-based chairman of the board and a, I think, UK or US-based chief executive officer, and the company is, in my opinion, doing things that are very questionable. You have to be careful not only of investors getting played, but also the executives, the US executives potentially getting played and taking people in China at their word uh, on what they say. Hey, this is what's going on with our China operation. You know, we did X, 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 and X today, and then they put that into an SEC filing, and then the U.S. CEO uh, signs off on it, and maybe he's going over to China and taking the tour that the auditors are taking where they turn the lights on when everybody comes in the, you know, the day the investors show up, and then the day the investors leave, they shut everything back down because it's not really a real company to begin with. And if you haven't If you don't think that has happened and you haven't seen that happen in action, you have to watch the movie The China Hustle. It's laid out in there. And so therein is one of the big risks. You have the uh, opacity when it comes to audits. You have the opacity when it comes to the numbers in China. You have the fact that nobody is held accountable by U.S. regulators in China You know, you have these audit requirements that are being put into place, but I think they still have three years from this time before they go effective, since it is a three-year rolling period that the PCAOB needs before companies can start being delisted. I also don't think many Chinese companies will care. I think that they'll take their three years, the executives will cash out, um, they'll continue to run the schemes that they're running, and the three years will go by and they'll be delisted. So it'll just be a dragnet to take in dead zombie companies that had committed fraud and maybe are done with it now. Um, But in addition to the VIE structure, in addition to um, the audit requirements not being the same, in addition to there being no 
basically no criminal liability for this type of fraud over in China. There's just so much opacity when it comes to the numbers that are reported. So say you're okay with the VIE, the VIE structure and you're okay with, you know, the audit requirements and the company's auditor because, you know, they, they come from a trusted naming. You want to you wanna check out the numbers for yourself. Well, a lot of these auditors don't even go to where these companies are in China. You know, a lot of them never even set foot on the site. A lot of them never go into the factory, which is why you had, you know, the reverse takeover years where guys like Kerisdale and Citron and Muddy Waters and Geo Investing were pointing out a brand new Chinese fraud every day because nobody would set foot on where these companies were. And what people were finding when they actually went and set up cameras to monitor the activity at these places, which, by the way, it's not like the U.S. where you could just do that and stand outside and not have to worry about the consequences. In China, they will jail you for that. So nobody really wants to do it. But when these people started doing that and they started sending Chinese investigators to look at these companies, they found out that many of them just didn't exist. Not only that the business didn't exist, that they weren't making, you know, X amount of bags of fertilizer that they said they would, but that the businesses didn't even exist. You know, there was nothing rolling off the production line or there were locks on the doors, those types of things. So all of that, the reason I'm telling you all of that is because those are all of the pitfalls with investing in Chinese companies listed in the U.S. that you have to be aware of. And the general rule of thumb for me is if the headquarters is in China, I stay away from it. Even companies like Alibaba, you say, oh, it's a huge company. How could they, you know, commit such fraud? How could, look, we have no idea. We have no idea. You talk to somebody like Herb Greenberg about Alibaba who did all this work on it, or you talk to somebody like Jim Chanos about Alibaba, and they'll tell you the company's a black box. It's a black box, despite the hundreds of, you know, hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of pages of disclosure There's no way to verify a lot of these companies' numbers. It's very, very difficult to do the research on your own. And if you can't do the research on your own, you know the old expression, if you can't explain it using a crayon and a sheet of paper, it's probably too complicated. And that's why most Chinese companies aren't even worth touching with a thousand-foot pole. And then, of course, there is the other risk outside of the audits, outside of the opacity in the numbers, outside of the VIE structure, outside of auditors and exchanges not verifying for themselves that the properties even exist and those type of things. There's the other issue of the Chinese government can do whatever the fuck it wants, whenever the fuck it wants. This isn't like in the United States, okay, where if the U.S. government tried to shut down Apple... Apple would unleash a horde of lawyers on the U.S. government and U.S. regulators with their, you know, $200 billion in cash or whatever they have and, like, just probably decimate the U.S. government in the court system. Well, that is not how things work in China. In China, the government is the court system. Thank you very much. And if Xi Jinping says, it's time for you to get shut down, it's time for you to get shut down. And this is what we have seen not only with Alibaba in the past, but what we're seeing with Didi now. Um, And so if you remember, Alibaba, for instance, uh, their uh, head little gnome in charge, Jack Ma, turned up missing at one point, although he wasn't like technically missing. 
they they showed a photo of him like he's alive he's okay remember when kim jong-un went missing and then they like peddled around a photo of him from like 10 months earlier it's like here he is enjoying the snow it's like yeah it's august you know like what where's the snow come from like here he is skiing you know it's like all right yeah it's 120 degrees out but okay anyways no he he went missing kind of uh as in like nobody saw him for two months and then all of a sudden this photo appeared of him you know here's jack ma looking happy you know the off camera probably some guy with a gun to his head smile motherfucker you know like one of those things and uh <laughs> so he this dude just turns up missing and then all of a sudden here we are in January of this year, and here's the article from January. Under pressure from China, Jack Ma's Alibaba Group to shut down its music streaming app. Chinese billionaire Jack Ma's Alibaba Group, which is currently under scrutiny by the Chinese government for alleged monopoly practices. <laughs> hey, the Chinese government's the only people that are allowed to have a monopoly around here, right? Is set to shut its music streaming service in a bid to scale down its business. So it fell under some scrutiny. I'm going to read you a little bit more about that right now. The application was acquired by Alibaba. Uh, they're talking about Xiaomi Music. Uh, will cease operations next month. The application was acquired in 2013 and has since seen investment worth millions, but the app currently controls only 2% of the country's music streaming market. And then it says, in December 2020, Ant Group was planning to turn its financial operations into a folding company, allow it, allowing it to operate and be regulated more like a bank. Chinese regulators had threatened to interfere in the financial functioning of the company in relation to monopoly practices. China's response could, could, could considerably stop the growth of Ant Group's profitable units. The country's central bank, People's Bank, in December told Ant executives to improve their business model and to comply with the country's regulations. In the central bank statement, Ant Group is depicted as lacking a governance mechanism while adding that the fintech company is defying regulatory compliance requirements. Amid reports of Jack Ma going missing, a CNBC report on Tuesday claimed that he wasn't missing but just, quote, laying low, quote, at present after telling off Chinese government regulators. Yeah, that's a good fucking time to lay low. So I don't know if you remembered in conjunction with that, they fucked up the whole... Ant Group IPO that was supposed to happen. They just railroaded that. The Chinese government just said, hey, we're going to put this business under such scrutiny and the IPO just isn't happening. And I forget where Ant Group was supposed to list, but let's just have a look. Here it is. Here was the Ant Group saga. On November 3rd, 2020, just two days before Ant's $34 billion IPO, Chinese regulators extraordinarily suspended the process. According to Chinese officials and others with knowledge of the process, there was a months-long tug-of-war between Ant founder Jack Ma and top regulators, led by Vice Premier Liu He, who is responsible for the economic and financial policies under Xi Jinping. And by the way, guess who's going to win that fucking war every time? Spoiler alert, it's the Chinese government. On December 20th, the Wall Street Journal reported that Ma had angered Beijing by criticizing Xi Jinping's signature campaign to control financial risks in a speech in October. In a November 2nd meeting with regulators, Ma offered to hand over parts of Ant Group to the Chinese government to salvage his relationship with them. And according to people with knowledge of the matter, Ma said to the regulators, you can take any of the platforms Ant has as long as the country needs it. Ma's offer did not save the IPO from being suspended. 
And so here we are again. All right. Just years, months, maybe a month and a year. I don't know how long it's been or maybe two years after the luck and coffee disaster, which was a U.S. listed China based company that was revealed to be a massive fraud, massive fraud uh, after that. And uh, just about six to eight months after the Ant Group IPO was suspended and Jack Ma decided to, quote unquote, lay low and literally 24 hours after Didi is listed and Didi is the biggest ride sharing company in China. It is the Uber of China, except they have something ridiculous like 90% of the market share in China. And 24 hours after the company lists in the U.S., the Chinese government decides they are going to institute a massive regulatory crackdown on the company, which means that if you bought into the IPO, if you're a U.S. investor or an investor in general that bought into the IPO over the last 24 hours, uh, when the market opens tomorrow morning, which is July 6, 2021, DD is probably not going to be trading at the $15 per share that it was trading at when the market closed last Friday. It is probably going to get clanged much lower. Uh, we'll have to see. But here's Reuters on the Didi saga, ride-hailing giant Didi Global said a regulatory order that its app be removed from app stores in China could hurt revenue. While other newly U.S.-listed Chinese firms also found themselves the subject of cybersecurity investigations. Okay, so this crackdown is under the guise of a cybersecurity investigation. But basically, what you need to know is the Chinese government just came out and said, we're taking the app off the app store. Hi, we know you just listed. We know it's going to affect your revenue. We know you're, you know, a large company with that many people in the country depend on. We know that many U.S. investors have piled money into this company. But you know what? You're not selling your app anymore. End of story. You just can't have people download it anymore until we decide that it's okay. So either the investigation has to be done, whatever fucking charges they've drummed up against the company, or the executives haven't kissed the ring of Xi Jinping the right way yet. I'm not sure what needs to happen, but the point is that's not going to matter if you're a U.S. investor and you bought the stock on Friday because when the market opens tomorrow morning, you're probably going to want to hit the Jack Daniels a little bit early because you're probably not going to be doing well on your DD investment. So in addition to, let me read the rest of this article, Sunday's takedown order from the Cyberspace Administration of China also known as the CAC, <laughs> comes two days after the regulator announced an investigation into Didi and less than a week after it made its debut on the New York Stock Exchange. So the company debuts on the New York Stock Exchange. A couple days later, the CAC announces uh, the, an investigation into Didi. And then a couple days after that, the CAC says, shut it down. Here's the takedown order. Didi told Reuters on Monday that it was unaware before the initial public offering that the cock would launch a cybersecurity investigation or order a halt in China to new user registrations and a suspension of app downloads. Of course, they have to say that if they did know that, that it's about the biggest slam dunk case of securities fraud that you can get. The CAC's move also comes amid a widespread regulatory squeeze on Chinese tech firms that began with the scuttling of a $37 billion listing planned by Alibaba fintech affiliate Ant Group late last year. 
Martin Chorzempa, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, said both the anti-IPO cancellation and this action on Didi showed that IPOs can be very dangerous in China, shedding light on one scale in operations that invite regulatory scrutiny. The article continues, much of China's regulatory blitz has been by its antitrust watchdog, and the order against Didi represents one of the CAC's most high-profile actions since the CAC's 2014 founding, suggesting a growing emphasis on data security for firms listing in the United States. Or just that China wants to fuck with companies that are listing in the United States. I mean, that's the nice official answer that they just gave. But honestly, it looks like China could just be out to fuck with companies that are listing in the U.S. Or maybe it's companies that are not paying homage to the Chinese government the way they should be. Either way, when you take into effect the risk of having to operate under the umbrella of the Chinese Communist Party, along with all the other bullshit that I just talked about, investing in Chinese-listed firms uh, is a very risky proposition, Um, which is why, you know, I've talked openly about Tesla being in China and why the discussion continues to be drummed up about you know, whether or not Elon Musk could be a Chinese asset, could wind up being a Chinese asset at some point. You got to understand the Chinese just don't fucking do stuff for the good of the cause. They do stuff for the good of China. They're smart. They're shrewd. They're very shrewd business people that focus on results. Um, They are guilty of uh, humanitarian crimes. uh, But when it comes to business... They are about as shrewd as it gets. And it's the same as when it comes to espionage, um, things like that. They play the long game. They're very smart. They are, I want to say, much smarter than many of us here in the U.S., though we do have some wonderful regulators here and some people that are very sharp. But they're not brand new. And they don't think in terms of, you know, minutes, hours, days, or weeks. They think in terms of the long con. I mean, obviously, I'm not an intelligence analyst, but I have a tiny bit of experience. I've spoken to some Chinese nationals. I think I have a a little bit of an understanding, a little bit of a feel uh, for the ethos of the CCP. And that is how they operate. So you are dealing with that risk, whether you're Didi or whether you're Tesla. And, you know, reports over the last couple of months that have come in about Tesla and China kind of being on the shits with one another. Uh, And then all of a sudden you had this weird turnaround on Bitcoin from Elon Musk at the same time that the Chinese government came out and started railing against Bitcoin mining. Man, that was a very interesting coincidence. And then, of course, you have these tweets of recent by Elon Musk basically kissing the ass of China. As a matter of fact, there was an article uh, called something like that. I'm going to look it up. Ass Elon Musk. Here it is. This is from March of this year, and it's called Elon Musk's China Ass Kissing Tour Continues. Uh, and this is from Zero Hedge. And this is what it reads We don't know what's more relevant the fact that Elon Musk is literally kissing the ass of the Chinese government or the fact that the U.S. media seems to be digesting this as a meaningful story. Regardless, it has been tough not to notice that Elon Musk has been cozying up to China. As the New York Post so eloquently put it this week, 
The Tesla CEO apparently, quote, sang Beijing's praises in a recent interview with state-run China Central Television, the report notes. The interview was released Tuesday. Musk said that China would become Tesla's largest market. China is headed towards the biggest economy in the world and a lot of prosperity in the future, Musk said during the interview. And then I think that Musk was actually out tweeting something just a couple of days ago singing the praises of China again. On June 30th, he said, the economic prosperity that China has achieved is truly amazing, especially in infrastructure. I encourage people to visit and see for themselves. Well, I'm going to pass on the visit, but I'm, and that was in response to a uh, XH News, which is China state-affiliated media. So Elon Musk was responding to uh, China state-affiliated media, essentially the Chinese propaganda machine, and saying, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Everything looks good from my seat over here in my fucking Model S plaid. But I have to say, we have to keep a close eye on this because China is Tesla's largest market. That gigafactory that they have over there is instrumental in uh, not only sales, production, and delivery for Tesla in general, but also for exports that come out of that Chinese factory. I think they do export some vehicles from there uh, to the rest of Europe and places that are closer and make more sense to export to than to export from Fremont. So there may be some leverage there, though there isn't anything provable yet, but I think that just in the case of Didi, you see how much power the Chinese Communist Party can wield, and I think it's important to keep a close eye on that part of Tesla Um, Because also, too, there was reporting maybe a year ago or some months back that said that they were starting to turn Tesla's China operations from an English-speaking company to a Chinese-speaking company. They were essentially making it more of a Chinese company instead of a subsidiary of an English-run company. They were changing their email systems over to Chinese and other shit. And they had put into place, I think, a woman in the PR office over there that was a former CCP PR spokesperson or something like that. So you have to, you know, you have to think that part of that deal with Tesla finding itself in China has to be a little bit of a deal with the devil in some ways. Um, And got to keep a close eye on that. And I think if you don't, if you don't do the Chinese government right, then they will do you dirty. And I think that Ant Group Financial and I think that Didi um, and maybe even Tesla in the future have found that out and will find that out. And that is why I think there is a lot of risk in investing in any U.S.-listed China-based company still, even with these new rules in order. I don't think anything has changed because I see a half a dozen of them a year, many of them still listed, zombie companies that haven't even been delisted, that, you know, wind up in indices, they wind up in, uh, you know, people's ETFs and in people's retirements, and, oh, they look good because they got a low PE, and, you know, hey, maybe this one isn't a fraud, But, I mean, the amount of the companies that come out of China that are fraudulent is just baffling. Um, And so if the headquarters has a Chinese city next to it and the press releases, you know, start by listing the Chinese city where they're being written, I would just be very cautious. But, again, that's not financial advice. I'm just speaking of what I, you know, now is like almost like my decade of experience in doing this. Um, And I have some, uh, you know, hands-on experience in doing it. So that is what's going on with Didi in terms of what happens in the future. We'll have to see. They may either wind up paying 
a massive fine. Uh, the question is, as I was discussing with somebody today, you know, if you want to look at Didi from an investment standpoint, which of course I do, right? That this idea of it just being uh, a complete and total mess, it 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 gets to the contrarian in me. I want to know, like, hey, like, is there is there a point where this company gets cheap enough where it's worth looking at, even given all of the opacity, even given all the risks and the reasons that I just laid out not to invest in U.S. listed China-based companies. Um, and then you have to think about things like comparing it to other rideshare companies. As my friend uh, Rosemont Seneca on Twitter sent to me today, Lyft has 23 million users with 3.6 billion in uh, 2019 revenue. They did. Uh, they had a $19 billion market cap, which was uh, 5.2 times revenue when it went public. Uber went public at 6.6 times revenue. Uh, Didi has 550 million users, which is five times as many as Uber had during its IPO. Uh, It has $23 billion in uh, revenue. In 2019, it did. Uh, It had an $80 billion market cap, which was 3.4 times sales. So priced a little bit cheaper than Lyft and Uber. But again, you are, uh, it's probably priced according to all of these risks. If the stock goes to $1, um, and the company isn't demonstrably a fraud, there may be something to think about. Even at $5, there may be something to think about. Then it's like, all right, well, you have this you know, enormous company that is basically ingrained in the Chinese infrastructure. What can happen? It, you know, Is it going to go away for good? Will the Chinese government make it go away for good? And the question is just whether or not the company is going to be permanently impaired going forward, and you have to handicap those risks on your own. Uh, and, and, you know, but certainly... It seems to me as though the people that paid the $15 per share uh, for the IPO on this uh, might wind up getting hosed uh, at the very least in the short term. And maybe it turns into a different discussion in the mid-single digits. Um, Or maybe you just stay away and then you don't even have to worry about it. You don't even have to try to handicap all these risks that in a million billion years, you're never going to wrap your head around all the risks involved in a company that's listed in China. For those of you that are patrons of mine, you'll notice I sent out a memo this week on my Patreon, which is something I never do. I never really... What the fuck is all this? Jesus Christ. What is all this shit? Ugh. Ugh. I got some shit in my water bottle. All right. Um, hi. Welcome to the Quote the Raven podcast. What the fuck was I just saying? <laughs> <laughs> you should edit that out, Chris. I'm not editing shit. All right, those of you that are patrons of mine noticed that this week I sent out a memo asking you for your questions. I said, hey, I'm taking questions for my next podcast because I did that for a couple reasons. One is the people on my Patreon are so nice. They get precisely nothing in return and they support my podcast, which I appreciate so fucking much. It really has made the podcast possible. It you know, continues to encourage me to come on here and share what I think about things. And it lets me know that people are listening. Uh, it is really the engine behind what keeps the podcast going. I appreciate you guys so much. There are some you know, expenses related to the podcast. And there is some time that it takes to get things set up and to uh, keep things running. And you guys help out a lot with that. So I just wanted to say thank you very much. And I think I'm going to engage with my patrons more uh, either by doing question and answer when I know I'm going to do a uh, our bullshit economy podcast like today, or maybe I'll just start writing some of my thoughts also too. 
which might make things easier. Either way, I want to try to start giving uh, a little something back to my patrons who have been kind enough to support me all of this time. So what I'm going to do now is run down the uh, questions I got from my patrons uh, as of earlier this weekend, and I haven't read any of these, so I'm going to read them out loud now, and I'm going to answer them. Uh, There's only about 15 of them, uh, as best that I can, and that's how we're going to end the podcast today. Uh, The first one comes from my brother, Greg Brophy. What's going on, Brophy? He said, we have had an explosion in the money supply, something like a 30% increase in one year. But the bond guys, who are usually the smartest, aren't selling off the long bond. They must not believe we are going to have the inflation that seems self-evident to me. Who is right? Well, there's a million answers to this, right? I mean, it depends. I mean, Peter Schiff would tell you the inflation is right there because the inflation is the expansion of the money supply. The inflation you're talking about is rising prices. Um, you know, and I think the answer to the question is a combination of things. I think the first is, you know, the Fed is a, a constant bid under the bond market. And so it doesn't really matter what the bond guys do anymore. I mean, if the Fed wasn't in the bond market, who the fuck knows where rates would be at right now, right? I mean, you can argue, hey, uh, you know, they're not in the long part of the curve as much as they're in the short part of the curve, whatever. The point is, the Fed is the bid in the bond market. End of story. There is no way in hell that if the Fed isn't supporting the bond market, rates just sit at where they're at and bonds just continue to be bid the way that they've been. Uh, because I, you know, the bond guys were always thought of as the smartest guys in the room, right? They're the Rick Santellis. They're the floor traders from fucking the SIBO. You know, they're the old open outcry guys. The bond guys often are very smart and much smarter than equity people. That's just the way of the world. You can't tell me that if there was no bid under the bond market, that bonds would be where they're at. Now the question, Mr. Greg Brophy, is whether or not the bond market is going to be able to crack up at some point, to use Bill Fleckenstein's term, uh, and what the consequences are of that if it happens. I don't think anybody is buying the narrative that inflation is transitory. I mean, certainly when you see guys like Mohammed Al-Aryan on TV expressing concern, you know that you know the, the quote-unquote financial world insiders don't seem to be buying it. We've seen notes out of major banks saying that there's concern about inflation. Uh, you know, Leon Cooperman just said last week, oh, I think everything's going to end badly. So there, there's been an expression of, of doubt, especially, you know, guys like Peter Schiff, guys like Gunlock, um, that this is not going to end very well. The question is, you know, what gives first? Um, and I, I just don't know if it's going to be the bond market, to be honest with you. Uh, and I don't know how much steam bond market sellers would need to uh, to kind of mow down the Fed or if that's even possible at this point. But that is my, um, that's my very unsophisticated answer to that question. There's no doubt that there's been an explosion in the money supply. And there's no doubt that eventually, you know, that money is going to trickle its way out and continue to bid up consumer prices. No doubt in my mind, we're seeing some of it now. I think some of it now is still supply constraints due to covid But I think more hot money is going to hit the market soon. And I think, you know, commodities will continue to rise in price. Things like, you know, shipping and container ships. I posted a chart this morning that I stole from Zero Hedge a couple of days ago showing rates just going through the roof. I think we can just expect more of that 
Um, you know, the inflation is self-evident, Greg. I think you're right. Um, you, all you got to do is look at a chart of the expansion of the money supply. So we'll see when that catches up in consumer prices and how the bond market reacts. But for right now, it's a uh, it's a very interesting, you know, the bond market is like a submarine that's rated to go 30,000 feet underwater, but it's kind of floating along at 35,000 feet underwater. And you could start to see kind of cracks just starting to come through and you're starting to hear some weird noises like maybe there may, maybe there might be too much pressure, but I don't know what it looks like when the whole thing goes to shit. You'd probably be better served asking uh, George Gammon or Peter Schiff a question like that. They'd probably have a more sophisticated answer, but that's my that's my low-brow, drunk guy at a bar answer for you. James Polos asks, when buying gold and silver, is there something special I look for when purchasing, or am I simply thinking about accumulating? Yeah, generally, I'm just thinking about accumulating. Um, and so I'm not an expert in purchasing bullion. I try to find uh, you know rates that are relatively close to what the spot rate is. Uh, I've had a lot of success using JM Bullion uh, in doing that. I think you know a lot of these precious metals trade at a premium right now to spot. I don't see that changing at any point soon because I think there is a disconnect between actual real world demand uh, and you know the price of the futures contracts. Um, and so I, I wouldn't be freaked out about that. Um, but really, I look for just simple, um, you know, from uh, reputable places like the Perth Mint, uh, you know, places like that where I, I know, you know, it's going to be reputable bullion. Um, but most things that you can get on sites like JM Bullion are vetted by them before they're sold uh, as well. So nothing really that I look for. If you have questions, email Laura at jmbullion.com. She could probably help you out a lot better than I could. Colorado 14ers asked me, as a single man, how do you navigate topics like our bullshit economy while dating? Is there a way that you can tell if she's open-minded and if you believe she is an MSM lead-led drone? How does that affect your interest level? Um, to be honest with you, you know, I've dated a lot of women with varying viewpoints on politics um, and ideologies. And what I'll say for the most part is that if you're capable of having a discussion about it, uh, regardless of your viewpoint, then I, I welcome that. Um, you know, if you're able to have a discussion about viewpoints and just kind of uh, talk about it intelligently and bounce around ideas without shouting, without screaming, without freaking out, without crying, without turning it into a scene, um, then that I'm okay with. You know, I don't really pick and choose people that I like and friends that I'm friends with based on their ideologies, based on, you know, how they live their lives. I, I pick it based mostly on character. Um, I don't really pick it based on their political viewpoints. I mean, one of my best friends is a bleeding heart liberal. I love the dude to death. I would take a bullet for him. Uh, and so, uh, you know, because we have intelligent discussions and at least respectful discussions about things. So, um, you know, I just, what I do is I try not to be very forthcoming about how I feel about everything, not because I'm afraid to put my viewpoints out there, but because I think it's in some respects a private thing. And as a libertarian, uh, you know, I welcome whatever it is that you think. I may not agree with you. I support your right to have those opinions. And I would hope that you feel the same about me. And, and 99 times out of 100, when I go to the bar, when I go to a family function, when I do this, when I do that, it doesn't come up. You know, I just don't bring it up. Sometimes because I don't feel like, you know, getting into the inevitable discussion or argument that I know is going to ensue. Uh, I don't just don't think it's worth it. Uh, sometimes I just, uh, you know, you know, there's people whose minds are made up and you're not going to be able to convince them. Uh, myself, I like to think that I'm malleable on some things. 
I will listen to anybody try to convince me about anything. Uh, and so I'm okay with that. If you know, you can make a point that is going to further what I appear to be, you know, what I think to be ideological best practices, I would welcome that. Uh, but for right now, um, that's kind of my thought, you know, obviously character plays into it too. So when I say that I kind of, you know, I judge people based on their character, um, there's certain character types that are associated with certain ideologies, etc. And, and when I when I avoid those people or I selectively choose not to share with those people, a lot of times it's based on their character, which is their ability to handle a discussion about a given topic instead of what their actual uh, opinions are on the topic. I hope that makes sense. Ben Roy asks, what signs I'm looking for that we're at the end of the meme madness? I don't know, Ben Roy, but I think we'll know it when we see it. Um, a lot of people thought it was the GME hearings. I don't know if we're there yet, but I think that may have just been, you know, this recent AMC thing may have been the dead cat bounce after that being the end. Um, but I feel like something big will come down the pipe and we'll know that we're at the end of the meme madness. Um, otherwise it's just going to continue. The hot money is going to keep coming into the market. Robin Hood's going to continue to enable unsophisticated investors to pour money into whatever crap they want to. Companies are going to continue to put out fluff narratives, even though they're not generating any profit or in some cases, any revenue. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's always been crap on the public markets. This is just crap gamified now. Um, and who knows? I think, Maybe we see a big exogenous event, something like the end of the crypto market in general. Uh, a lot of people say that can't happen. Listen, motherfucker, anything can happen. All right. Uh, you know, if Bitcoin goes bust or we find out something crazy about the crypto market, I think that would take a lot of this hot money out of the market in a flash, something like that. I don't know exactly what to look for, Benroy, but I feel like it's one of those things that we'll know it when we see it. Brother Lewis Desi asked me, can you ask the guest about what's going on with the reverse repo market? Why is it at record high amounts and almost a trillion? Well, I'm the guest, let me just tell you. And what I will do is I will recommend an article that I read to you this morning called Zoltan Sees Reverse Repo Hitting Two Trillion in Weeks. What happens then? And this is the, uh, it's the top article on Zero Hedge right now. Um, again, it's called Zoltan Sees Reverse Repo Hitting Two Trillion in Weeks. What happens then? Give that a read. That explains some of the reverse repo market shenanigans. Uh, I read it this morning. I understood probably only half of it. I don't want to try to even explain the reverse repo market in depth right now because I'd probably be doing more harm than good in doing that. You got to know what you know and what you don't know. I would recommend reading that article. Um, essentially, the reverse repo facility is a place for uh, banks and large institutions to park capital that is being uh, kind of tossed around for uh, trades and uh, securities being moved around with very quick settlements to the best of my understanding. Um, and so what I understand now is that Fed facility is paying something like five basis points uh, now for, for people to use it, uh, encouraging these banks and institutions to park capital there. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, liquidity at banks. Uh, read that Zoltan article. I think that explains it a little bit better than I just did. Um, I don't want to lead you down the wrong path. Bryce Martell asked me, in your view, is there a world where the Fed threads the needle and we do have transitory inflation and they're able to taper the balance sheet without crashing all markets? No. There is not a world where that happens. They are not going to be able to taper the balance sheet without crashing all markets. End of story. They can't do it. 
They can't do it. It's just not going to happen because they taper the balance sheet. The market's going to crash immediately, just like it did when they announced they were going to taper the balance sheet before they tacked on another three trillion fucking dollars onto the balance sheet. You know, so just a year ago or two years ago before COVID, they said they were going to taper and the market took a shit. Uh, And I think the same thing will happen and people will freak out and CNBC commentators will, you know, have to run off the desk because they've got explosive diarrhea uh, after watching the Dow crash 1,200 points in 12 seconds. And all that fun will come back. By the way, I for one enjoyed that stuff. You know, that's called reality. And if you expect reality, you're not surprised when it happens. But if you're one of these people that lives in fucking la-la land and you're always listening to the narrative and the Fed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and everybody's happy, you're stunned that something like that could happen. So, Bryce, I don't think that, that it happens, but, you know, who the hell knows? I've been wrong about a lot of things. Edward Campbell asks, how does our absurd amount of debt not pre- not prevent hyperinflation? I'm not sure what you're asking. How does our absurd amount of debt not prevent hyperinflation. Um, I'm not sure. I think it will uh, lead to hyperinflation. I think they're going to have to monetize the debt. Uh, And with the monetization of the debt is going to be a lot more money printing. And so I think that, you know, they go hand in hand. Uh, Somebody commented the inflation versus deflation debate is interesting. It is essentially when you're talking about the sovereign debt that that is whether or not you think the government will default on our debts or print their way out of them, which are basically their two ways to deal with the debt. They'll either have to default on it or they'll have to print the money to pay it off. I think the latter is more likely, which of course would result in a uh, significant increase in the money supply, even more so than we've already seen. Uh, Alex Glazer, and again, I want to remind everybody, I'm not a financial professional and this is not financial advice. I'm a younger guy looking to invest the money I save every month. I feel like I'm late to the party because equities are so high on valuations, but the dollar is also losing value. So it feels like I'm going to get fucked whether I invest or save. Yeah, spoiler alert, you are. (laughs) Uh, When you look at this market, what are some things you use to help you better decide where to put a few extra bucks that will potentially help build wealth? I mean, look, for me, Alex, I like to listen to the guys like George Gammon and Peter Schiff um, because I think they understand what building wealth really means. I think that people from the Austrian school have a far better grasp on building and preserving wealth than people from the Keynesian school. And so I try to drift in that direction. That would be uh, my answer to that question. Kent asks me, However, the censorship by Google is out of control. I'd like to see you post on Odyssey or another platform. Okay. I will follow and support you where you go. Thank you. George Gammon mentioned on your show how Germany during and prior to World War II used private companies to do its bidding. I see some of the same stuff happening today. It's certainly interesting. I would say listen to Brett Weinstein's podcast. He just did one with Lex Friedman, uh, which I found interesting, and there's an index to it. I mean, I didn't find Lex Friedman interesting. I I just, I have trouble listening to him, but I'm sure he's a nice guy and he's a black belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which automatically wins my respect as a human being. But I have trouble listening to his podcast. And and actually, I think he's a black belt uh, from Balance too in uh, in Philadelphia. And I train with a couple of the Balance people who are wonderful people. So he gets even more respect for that. Having said that, Um, Brett Weinstein talks about censorship and the potential effects, and I think that would be a great listen. There's an index on that Lex Friedman podcast, and I'm going to tell you the number. I'm going to pull it up right now because I am a friendly fucking guy. It is uh, 
Lex Friedman's podcast number 194, Truth, Science, and Censorship. And I agree with mostly uh, what Brett said. The censorship discussion starts at a minute and 16 seconds. I mean, obviously, my feelings are that the censorship is never a good idea. Uh, it is just a slippery slope that is going to lead us to more trouble. Uh, you know, the more we, ch- and just, just as it is with government in general, the more overreach you get, the more problems it's going to create, the more issues it's going to create. And I think censorship is the same thing. I think it becomes counterintuitive very quickly and creates more problems than it solves. I Jones asked me, do you think Amazon stock will be a good inflation hedge? Uh, their like-for-like retail business turnover is correlated with CPI and an inflation scenario will drive incremental business their way as shoppers are forced to spend time looking for cheaper prices. I like Amazon going forward. Uh, you know, I think at some point maybe antitrust questions enter into the picture as they kind of spread their way into other, uh, you know what else is interesting though? Companies like Walmart, who are essentially Amazon except starting from the brick and mortar side and not from the online side. You know, Amazon started as an online retailer and then kind of made its way into brick and mortar, made its way, you know, into healthcare, made its way into cloud services. And what's interesting is Walmart and I think eventually Target will do the same things. They're just branching into e, you know, e-commerce. Walmart acquired jet.com back in the day. And now Walmart is, you know, saying, I think last week they said they're going to be producing insulin or something. Uh, They're getting into the medical field. So I think Walmart and Target and names like those are going to become Amazons. Uh, They're just coming in from a different angle. And I think those would be interesting to watch as potential investments. Um, I like Amazon though, going forward. Uh, I think the company obviously is going to be just fine. I really, if I had to pick, you know, just a basket of companies to own for the next 20 years, I really like Google. Uh, probably, you know, even even with the censorship conversation we just had, unfortunately, I think Google as an investment is a great company. Um, you know, I like Apple. Uh, I think these are companies that despite the more robust valuations should be okay going forward. But again, not financial advice, um, but I got no beef with uh, with Amazon. Where do you think the real estate market is going? Badge Trading asked me. Feels like we may be in a bubble. Yeah, with unlimited QE, is it a good way to hedge against inflation? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I keep thinking I'm glad that that I own some real estate. I thought about selling because the market is hot. And uh, I just can't bring myself to do it because I want another inflation hedge. Exactly what you just said. I just want to be diversified as much as I can because I don't really know what's going to happen with the real estate bubble. Uh, I really don't. I mean, there's no doubt we're, we're in a bubble right now. Uh, I don't know what is going to, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I really don't. It could go bust tomorrow uh, or it could, you know, 3X from here. The fact that we had a real estate bust in 2008 leads me to believe that this one might keep going. Oftentimes, you know, even if it corrects slightly, uh, it could keep going for the long term. The real estate market kind of moves in these big, you know, multi-decade cycles. Um, But, you know, we're in uncharted and unprecedented territories. It's a very tough question to answer going forward. Uh, So I'm not going to. So how's that for getting value for your patron? Sorry about that. Doesn't mean I don't love you. Uh, I just have no idea what the hell is going to happen with the real estate market. All I know is shit is out of control right now. You have this huge shift moving from cities into the suburbs thanks to um, COVID. I think you know, personally, if I was going to invest in real estate now, if I had to buy some, I'd be buying in the cities where people are leaving because I think eventually, you know, the cities kind of always survive. If the uh, political idiots in the cities drive them into the ground, eventually they'll 
uh, settle on Republicans to come in and try to set set things straight. I'm not saying that there's not Republicans fucking things up too, because I'm sure there are. Um, but I'd be looking at that. I'd be looking at you know where people are leaving from uh, as places that eventually will bottom. Or you know, like a place like New York, where you know everybody's leaving because of the taxes. Everybody's going to Florida. You know, there's too much regulation. The taxes are too high. There's too much crime, and nobody wants to be in the city. And most of the people have moved out of the city as a result of COVID. Um, and so, you know, and people are pulling their kids out of private schools in New York because, you know, of what they're teaching the kids. So there is a little bit of an exodus from cities happening. Those are the places that if I had to look at real estate now that I would kind of be looking at, like, where's the opportunities there? Okay. Because eventually may not be this year, next year, five years, 10 years, but even if the fucking thing bursts, you'd have to hope that at some point people would wind up coming back to the cities with records and shifts opposing views. I'm sorry, I missed one. Toby Wilson asked, what happens first? Fed stops buying uh, MBS or the mortgage rates go above 4.5%. Once either happens, how far down in terms of percent terms will real estate fall? Uh, Yeah, that's a good question. I just don't see uh, rate. I don't think the Fed will stop buying uh, MBS. So I think that, uh, you know, rates will rise, I think, once the federal funds rate starts to rise. And I think that'll be it. Um, you know, mortgage rates going above 4.5%. I mean, I guess you're talking about uh, the prime rate. Um, I'm not sure what what it is you're referring to. It's just rates in general and average. I mean, it's going to vary depending on the borrower, obviously. Um, I just don't see the Fed stopping supporting any market, whether it's the bond market or the real estate market now. How far down in terms of percent will real estate fall? That's a great question. You know, if you it depends on how many bubbles you want to go back and say weren't actual recoveries. Because if we didn't actually recover from 2008, well, then we have a long fucking way to go in terms of real estate falling. I just can't try to predict what's going to happen. I just try to stay diversified uh, as best that I can. You know, across asset classes, across equities, bonds, commodities, gold, silver, real estate, those types of things. So I kind of have, you know, uh, many different irons in the fire and just hope to God that they don't all go to shit at the same time. But, uh, you know, it's so tough to try to make predictions other than something terrible will eventually happen because we've gone so far off the path where so many deviations away from the standard at this point. Thanks to the intervention of the central banks, it's very difficult to predict the future. Nobody has been where we are yet, and so nobody, and God, I'm the last fucking person on earth that should predict where the hell we're going. With records and shifts opposing views on inflation and deflation, which one makes sense to you in the interim more? Um, For me, you know, look, uh, I can see the case for deflation making sense also too, but I think uh, inflation and I think monetizing the debt is what is going to happen. And we're already seeing it. You know, you saw with COVID relief packages go out to certain municipalities, certain states, you know, states that are in financial trouble. And a lot of that is states and cities just asking for bailouts. Poorly run states and cities that are off budget, you know, that run at a deficit, that have just been poorly managed, just asking for the government to bail them out. And that is money the government doesn't have to offer them. So I have to say I fall under the umbrella of we are going to monetize the debt. We're going to wind up monetizing the debt um, until we see something that tells us we can't, which would be like a big inflation signal. And that's when shit is going to get weird. If we find out it's not transitory and even the rigged CPI number comes back in three or four months as completely out of whack. So that is my question. Except for Mark Haywood, who said, who's my dream guest and who would I love to have on the show that hasn't been on yet? That's a great question. You know, I'd love to talk to somebody like Brett Weinstein. I've invited him. I've invited 
guys like Jordan Peterson on the show uh, who's declined. I actually invited Larry Elder on the show who also uh, was polite enough to get back to me but said no. Uh, I love Larry Elder. I think he is a wonderful orator. I think he makes an absurd amount of sense. He's somebody I would love to talk to. Um, I've been lucky that a lot of people that I do want to talk to have been nice enough to come on. Guys like Mick West. I mean, these are people that I listen to when I'm not doing a podcast. Guys like Peter Schiff. You know, my buddy George Gammon comes on. uh, And so I've been lucky in that regard. Uh, but certainly, you know, I would love any of those other guys to uh, to come on. I would, geez, I'd love to have, I'd love to host a debate between Mick West and Bob Lazar. I was thinking about that today. I was re-listening to my Mick West debunks Bob Lazar debate. I would love to have a Peter Schiff versus Michael Saylor debate. I would host that any day of the week if those two want to do it. Um, and so those would kind of be great because that's the content that I want to see. Uh, so I'd love to have them on at any time. But for the most part, Mark, my dream guests have uh, have been on, and because of nice people like you that continue to support me, and I know you've supported me for a long time, uh, you make it possible for me to come on here and talk some shit for an hour or so, which I appreciate very, very much. But right now, I got about eight hours left in the holiday weekend, and folks, I really want to get to it. I want to get out there. I want to enjoy myself. I want to have some fun in the sun, but I'll be back very soon. Crack one open for me. As a matter of fact, make it a six-pack. Thank you guys so much for listening, and again, to my patrons... Big kiss, motherfuckers. I'm out.